Hello and welcome to Rewired, where leaders are challenged to rethink what, how and why they and their organizations learn. Rewired is proudly presented by Headspring, custom executive development specialists, as part of Headspring's commitment to fostering cultures of continuous learning. I am your host, Bevan Rees. We are all aware of the apparently imminent age of AI. Views of the future relationship between man and machine vary wildly. Especially debatable is the impending impact of AI and automation in the workplace. Will machines become our servants? Will we become slaves to an artificial intelligence? Or is there perhaps a less extreme reality on the horizon? My guest today is Gary Kildare, Chief HR Officer for IBM in Europe. and. Gary, welcome again, actually. Thank you. It's, I'm d- delighted delighted to be here. This is a, a first uh, for me, so I'm uh, uh, very pleased. And I'm, I'm hoping you're going to be kind to me with all of your, your questions. Very gentle, Gary. Very <laughs> gentle. Um, we actually, well, we, you and I didn't meet that particular day, but you were here fairly recently for the HR Forums event. Around six, Spring and the Financial Times. That's right. Around I think four or five weeks ago, that's and right, yeah. uh, it was a, a well attended event. And mm-hmm. uh, in fact, it was the, it, it was a good discussion, but also and some great questions, but uh, also some fun, fun too. I think, which is which is increasingly important these days. Yeah, absolutely. Um, good fun, and also very deep dive uh, into a topic that I'd like to explore more today, which is the role that humans play in an automated workplace. And we're really talking here about this exponential digital transformation going on in the workplace, um, the automation and based on AI that, that that's coming out of that. And obviously a lot of controversy and debate about what AI is, what this means, uh, what the potential ramifications are for the business. Um, and then also key functions within that business. So various sectors have commonly been identified as ripe for disruption with AI. But I think what one of the things we're learning is that almost all sectors are now disruptable. Um, and functions within the business are not just traditional technology functions. Uh, functions like learning, HR, are also available to be updated and upgraded through the use of these technologies. But this is also throwing up a bunch of very new and very real issues for, for these kind of domains. For sure. Absolutely. And um, I, I mean, to be, you know, at its most basic, I, I think the the prospect of of ai for organizations is that it will have an impact on on almost all professions mm. uh, and and all roles uh, because there are components of everything that we do in our daily lives that that ai can can help with and mm. can and can support um and i do see for sure that there is a start in areas like HR and learning, which seem ripe for change. Um, for my organisation, HR in particular, um, is is ready for it because uh, you know I uh, am very honoured to be part of a group that is a technology organisation, and consequently, you know the colleagues I work with are very interested in in being at the at the leading edge and wanting to try things mm-hmm. um, and to see how these things are working. So so our Objectives at the moment are really about transforming uh, the IBM company into a, a cognitive enterprise. Cognitive, very simple. It's it's really about thinking and how you use the technology to to support um, you know your operations and the activities that are that are there. Yeah. So 
I'm hearing a key strategic difference there between how technology is often applied in organizations, which is, you know, I see examples of of businesses sort of following the trend and while everybody else is doing this, we better do this quickly. And one of the reasons is we want to keep our employees happy and make them feel like they work in a, in a, you know, cutting edge organization, et cetera. But there doesn't seem to always be a full think through to how that technology relates to the outcomes that you're actually trying to drive. I, th- I think that's a great point. I think it's a really, a really great point. Um, and look, colleagues that I speak to, uh, clients that are in other organizations, um, you do have to, think a little bit about what it is you're you're going to try and do but um th- this is a it's not just a, a a phenomenon or a fashion trend of our time mm. um this is the shift that's occurring in our organizations and our world at large mm. and if you look at many of our um the young people um in fact, you don't have to be so young if you look at the way maybe all of us are starting to behave and to operate, then we're using technology, you know, in ways that probably we didn't think about 10 years ago or five years ago. Um, that trend is is going to continue. And what's interesting is that some of the people coming into the workforce, they want the experience in work to mirror the experience that they are having in their in their personal lives. So if you think about um, gamification, uh, if you think about the way you interact with technologies, the fact that many things are available using an app, um, that there is tremendous insight provided because of the data that's being uh, recorded and stored on 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 who you are and what your preferences and buying patterns might be, all of those things are starting to come into the workplace. And I suppose where I would encourage everyone, uh, certainly people who are in, in my kind of um, a role in organisations, is you you need to be experimenting. You need to be trying things out. This is part of 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 business today. Not everything will will fit or will work. But you do have to be trying things out because there is a there is a risk, I think, that um, some organizations will will actually get left behind if you ignore it or you refuse to adopt it or you don't think about what the consequences might be. Then I do think there's some risks that uh, that you get left behind. I I follow the work of Professor Ellen Brown and, and he's I was listening to um, some comments he made the other day about you know, specifically talking about functions like HR and how these, I suppose, technologically non-traditional um, functions within the business, that there's, they have almost a choice now between how they engage with technology. They can either allow it to happen to them, where there's this digital transformation happening in the organization, and it just has a an external influence on HR as it does at all the other functions. Um, there's also you know, the the development within, so in um, HR, for example, and then also through HR. So, he, I mean, he posits that this is the, the best outcome, is that HR actually becomes a, almost a, um, a campaigner. It's actually a, a conduit for digital transformation rather than, so a, a functional role player in the digital transformation of organizations rather than just this outsider that kind of guides everyone through feeling okay about it. 
I mean, how do you how do you see that? Do you think that distinction is valid? Or? No, I think it's I think it's a reasonable distinction, and I think it depends an awful lot. I mean, I uh, you know in my past life, um, I, I I remember being a student and being a musician, and mm -hmm. uh, if you're a musician, then rhythm is very very um, important, mm -hmm. and I believe uh, quite fundamentally that organisations have rhythm. And uh, provided you are doing things that ensures that rhythm is maintained, then you'll be in good shape. Mm -hmm. But when you start to uh, do things that are disharmonious or not in rhythm, then I think it can have a very uh, impactful, dislocating uh, effect in organisations. Um, so I, I guess what, what I would say is the progress you make, the, the, the journey to digital is something that all organisations are going through. Um, I tend not to use the word transformation these days because mm -hmm. this is just the way that it is. Mm -hmm. um, and I think some organisations will need to move fast because that's the rhythm of their organisation and others will move perhaps a little uh, less fast or mm -hmm. a little more slowly uh, in there. But I, I, I think you can already see that the kind of... Um, Patterns that are emerging are, you know, uh, moving routine tasks, moving um, administrative tasks, moving process-based tasks, and using technology is is possibly the first step. Mm -hmm. um, I think when you are looking to be an advocate um, or a proponent of where the technology can be used, then that allows you to be thinking about uh, other ways in which you can you can kind of harness the benefits of of AI, and I want to make maybe a, a wee distinction mm -hmm. uh, on on AI, because I think lots of people are talking about it as artificial intelligence, and I I am from an organisation, and I also on a personal view, I don't subscribe to the the whole artificial uh, uh, area, but I do subscribe very strongly to augmented intelligence, mm -hmm. and this is where when you're talking about um, organisations, they have um, deep skill, deep capability, deep data and analytics and are able to use all of those kind of capabilities and harness them working with human uh, uh, effort to get really the best of, of, of both worlds. And, and I can see that also translated into professions uh, 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 as we look outside as well, where you end up with the thought of an assistant, um, an, you know, an intelligent assistant that is um, supporting you, whether you are, you know, in the financial world, the legal world, uh, the medical world, the HR world, you would have a technology that is able to do many of the, the tasks um, at great speed that perhaps you might have done uh, in the past. And that is a way, I think, of, of giving us really a glimpse to where where the future might be. Hmm. So, I mean, a lot of, I suppose, the debate in this area is, you know, I suppose the big headline, you know, newspaper debate is, is all about, you know, the robots are going to take our jobs and, you know, the, the world will be different in 2050 and, you know, there will only be programmers and people sitting at home earning a universal basic income and uh, am i hearing you say that you know that's that's big and <laughs> flowery language but actually in reality we're talking more about a much more realistic blended approach between these kind of assistive uh, technologies 
but still very much in the province of, province of, of human behavior and human, human skill, that we're not going to suddenly become redundant. It's more a case of using technology intelligently. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, look, um, I, I think uh, if, you, if you consider, you know, the way things are likely to evolve, um, then the, the notion of, of harnessing human and machine together is so much more powerful than the the whole notion that that you know humans are going to be be unnecessary. I think that is quite fanciful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the stuff of of science fiction rather than science fact. Um, now, will this change the structure of some jobs? The answer is yes. Mm. It, it it will. Um, but I I don't think we have to be um, you know concerned or worried about that um, technology has always had an impact on uh, you know roles and jobs over time um, and I think there'll be new roles that are created and I think it will also help to support some of the roles in ways that that maybe we we haven't thought about. I mean, if you can think about you know a a person who's working in the legal field, then I know certainly in in my time, many of the lawyers were having to spend a lot of time to do research on cases or on uh, particular laws or policies or statutes. Um, having you know an intelligent help that's able to, to read all of those things very quickly um, and help you to, to tune in on the ones that are going to be relevant, I think would be a massive saving in time. Mm-hmm. Similarly, when you look in areas like uh, accounting or finance or medicine or even HR, I mean, uh, I deal with uh, a, a, a huge range of subjects and a huge range of policies, both inside and outside of the organisation the ability to have help to access those quickly and to really get to the heart of the matter that allows me to make perhaps better informed decisions is it, it, I'm absolutely uh, relishing that and looking forward to it very much indeed. So, so I, I mean, I think that's an excellent point that, that, that sort of what we're calling augmented intelligence will really take away a lot of those kind of menial Jobs. I mean, what what in some contexts we might call the dirty jobs, the boring jobs, and that you know hopefully it will take most of those away. But but we are still going to be required to upskill ourselves. There's still going to have to be the sort of continuous process of learning in order to optimize that process. Am I right? I mean, it's not it's not like we can suddenly stay static and let the machines take over the stuff we don't want to do. If anything, we have to stay constantly updated to really work with this technology in an efficient and optimal way? Well, there's a- absolutely no question okay. that that is the the way the world is is turning and that's the way that we need to be thinking about things. Um, the, the, the sort of learning model or the education model of school and university and work and retirement um, is... is a bankrupt model. It's a busted flush mm. uh, there. Um, and I think you are already hearing the people who are in those professions, in the learning and education profession, um, beginning to talk about uh, the need for more training and more skilling and more upskilling. And that that's likely continue for likely to continue for our for our whole lives. So I, I mean, we have heard you know 
probably for the last 15 or 20 years about lifelong learning. Mm. But I don't know that that's really been backed up mm. by more than, you know, no, a, a nice idea. But it is becoming a reality. The, the, the kind of half-life of skills, uh, even technical skills these days, is around five years, mm. which means that, you know, and, and by the way, the speed is increasing. Mm -hmm. So we may find that that's going to get even shorter. Mm. That means that, you know, each of us will have a, a, a kind of obligation for ourselves to continue to learn, to continue to grow, to continue to develop in order that we're staying up to speed on progress and we continue to be employed and do things that are, are part of, of the, the plan that we have for ourselves, mm -hmm. whatever that may be. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I had some discussions uh, quite recently uh, with some people who were talking about um, apprenticeships, and really this is focused around the the the, the entry uh, to 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 employment, but but I love the idea of you know an apprenticeship for life because I think mm. we are all going to have to do a number of different things. Uh, you know, uh, work time is expanding to be something like fifty or sixty years now, mm. Mm. Um, and the idea that you would be in one role or one job, or maybe just one profession, I think is, 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 is quite a, a difficult thought, uh, you know, without any kind of change. I, I, I think that uh, training, investment, learning, education, the methods that are used, the ways in which we will do that um, are all going to change very, very dramatically. Gary, you, you mentioned a few times there kind of the personal perspective. You know, we, we have this personal responsibility to keep educating ourselves, becoming, you know, apprentices for life. Where do you where do you see the the kind of the line where well, I suppose it's not even a clear line, but where the organisational responsibility and the individual responsibility meet? Because what I'm hearing you say is we we actually have a lot of personal autonomy in this process and and this kind of responsibility to ourselves. Where does the organisation fit into that in terms of empowering its 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 workforce for learning um, or contributing in a very active way? I think all of these things to to be uh, you know to be direct on it, um, organisations do have a commitment. They they are going to have a commitment to their people. They will need to enable. They will need to facilitate. They will need to support. Um, I think in some organisations, education may be something that is a an adjunct or a bolt on to what people are expected to do every day. But I believe it's going to become pretty mainstream. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can't think about the future or the workforce that you have without thinking about what will that be like in the future? Mm -hmm. uh, what kinds of things will you do? So I, I think we're still in the early parts of this with regard to what will the inter interventions be? How will organisations help? I think there are still some very traditional models of the organisation will skill me or will train me or will send me on a course. Mm, mm. I think the send me on a course uh, way of, of operating um, is absolutely from the past. Mm. I think it will be much more empowering. The people today in the workforce uh, are talking about the their own career and their own plans mm -hmm. and they feel a sense of uh, ownership and accountability to influence that um, and I I think the partnership between an individual and you, your organisation um, will continue but I think 
professions have a part to play. Universities will have a part to play. Government will have a part to play as well, because mm. if training is required for your whole life, uh, education for your whole life, you know, are we geared up to be able mm. to to support that? So I, I think that's a, an evolving area. I think there's some good thinking and some good uh, practices and some good ideas, but I think there's an awful lot more that uh, that that will will need to emerge here before we we have a, a level of um, confidence and transparency of how that's all going to all going to work. But mm. most certainly, it's an, an investment area for for organisations. They have to invest. They need they need the best skill and they need it need it to keep them going. So they're going to invest. Yeah, and, and I suppose what that skill is is to your point, constantly evolving um, in order to stay current and. At an accelerated rate over over the future, so this is an incredibly, almost an urgent issue for businesses to to at least take a position on, have a strategy on, be moving into. I I agree. I think it, it's very very important um, for businesses to have a strategy on it. Um, I think it's it's equally important for if you think about um, you know uh, whole uh, governments and societies and economic policies. I think all of this will have to to you know be 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 aligned. Uh, the the access to skill, the right skill, the relevant skill, uh, and dare I say it at the moment, it's technology skill. Mm-hmm. Um, we know all of the statistics are saying there's not enough of that right skill uh, around. I, I don't think that's going to be solved overnight or quickly because the target or the objective continues to move. It's dynamic. So it's not, you know, by the time you solve one set of skills, I suspect there'll be another set that is required and emerged that you, you need to move to. Mm. So so I, I, I think we're going to have to be able to move more quickly we're going to have to have better partnerships across business, across academia, across governments, economies uh, here, um, and um, I, I see it as the you know the most the most important thing. I think the idea from twenty or thirty years ago from science fiction that you know everyone would put their feet up on the table and relax because you know technology would do everything for us. I I I don't think that's the future that that uh, is emerging or that mm-hmm. I I see for us. Mm-hmm. But I think it's pretty exciting. And I do have, you know, rather than um, having a, a slightly, uh, you know, pessimistic view or, or, or a, 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 a doom and gloom view, I, I think it's tremendously exciting as you start to see, you know, new businesses that are emerging, new skill sets that are emerging, new ways of doing things, um, how technology really can help uh, make a difference. Um, and, and I'm I'm very very optimistic that uh, you know the this whole notion of 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 human with technology mm. and machine mm. um, it, it is absolutely the right the right path for us. It's not it's not about uh, you know technology replacing. It's about the partnership and how it can change what you do in a way that's going to uh, that's going to make you you know more effective and uh, and and more you know more efficient. So that's a very positive outlook, and you know, I think, I mean, personally, it really resonates. But, but in in many organisations, I mean, we we did a, a, a quite a strong research piece earlier this year um, on AI in the workplace, and and there were a number of interesting findings. But one was almost a divergence in approach or thinking about 
AI and AI becoming more integrated into organizations between you know senior level um, management and executive leadership and then the kind of the the, the lower tiers of the hierarchical workforce um, and, and you know there were a few differences but one of them was about the expectations of AI and most CEOs and senior level executives had the view that AI would optimize production and help make um, outcomes more efficiently sustainable, etc. Whereas further down the organization, there seemed to be less of that of that kind of thinking. You you mentioned you come from an organization where there's a it sounds like an, a cultural appetite for development, especially technological development in all areas of the business. Do you have views or experience of of outside IBM, for example, or even the ICT sector, how do you, have you seen or detected any kind of inertia or a kind of resistance to this kind of change? Well, I think, I think there, there is, I mean, the, the, in fact, there are uh, some groups that are, are kind of betting against uh, technology because they see it as a, as a, you know, a negative force. Um, you know, I, I, don't particularly subscribe to that. Some some of these are very learned people, by the way, and they're they're absolutely entitled to have have their opinion. Um, and yes, there are. We're still. It's it's still a a new technology. So I would argue it's immature. Mm. Uh, you can see some experimentation. You can also see, you know, newspaper headlines and criticism of particular technology because has been implemented and it's not doing exactly what uh, everyone thinks it should. But but this is how technology starts. Mm. And by the way, it will learn uh, as, as it goes. I think there are different views. Um, you know, there, there are different views from, from the top of organisations and those that are in the middle or in the, in the bottom. The most important thing that I see is technology access is absolutely critical. Mm. So we talked earlier about skills. I think skills is a uh, an imperative for organisations and something that the organisation has a role to play in, as do we uh, uh, as individuals. But it's really important that we don't create a world of winners and losers because some people have access to technology and others do not. Mm. So I think there is a skill requirement that says organisations, uh, for the, the good of society, uh, we need to make sure that we're providing access and that we're bringing uh, people forward and not creating a kind of uh, winners and, and losers. So I think there's an incumbent responsibility with organisations, with technology players, that, that they must provide provide that that help and that access uh, again i think it's not just uh, solely with the employers mm, but mm. but i think society it, it requires it uh, uh, otherwise there'll be a group of people who 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 are not accessing or involved um uh, and and will not will be trapped in some respects uh, because of that so i mean that's a fantastic point gary so i mean access i mean organizations providing access to technology is obviously the first step would you, would you say that getting people to engage with that technology and make best use of the access is, do you think that's a natural outcome or do you think that there has to be a cultural adaptation or evolution within the organization sometimes to get people throughout the organization really on board? Well, I mean, I, I, I actually think that there, uh, I, I don't subscribe to the, the kind of view that, you know, 
everyone has to uh, go through the same uh, process or education experience uh, uh, or uh, life situation to, to, to be successful or to be successful in technology or to be able to access it. But what I do think is, is really important is that, um, you know, there, there are parts of the world where technology has not penetrated uh, nearly as much as it has in, in perhaps some of the Western, uh, Western countries. We, we have to make sure that that, that uh, happens, uh, that people, um, young people in particular, are, are being encouraged um, because the, the roles, the jobs uh, in technology... Um, are likely to be the kinds of skill that will um, lead to uh, advancement of the society, higher levels of, of, of pay, etc., etc. So I think it's very, very important. And the, the hunger that technology has for more and more skill, um, I think, will automatically cause the organisations to look further and further afield ways to provide the access, give the training, allow more and more people to to enter. I mean that may sound a little bit uh, rosy in view, but but we you know I think that that need, needs to be one of the the, the 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 pieces of this jigsaw puzzle that that, that is uh, that's completed. Mm, I mean and, and based on what you said earlier, this, it's sounding increasingly like this is not negotiable really. No, not really. This is wanting to be sustainable and and have a lifespan. Not, not really. And again, I mean, we go back. The statistics and the data tell you that there is a very, very significant gap in the numbers of skills that are required and the availability of those skills. Mm. So we can either wring our hands and say, "Isn't it difficult that we don't have enough people?" Or we can look at ways in which we can find other people, train other people give them the access um, and, and, and give them a brighter uh, prospect in terms of their, their futures too. Yeah, I mean, the, the numbers that I've seen suggest that the skills deficit is particularly extreme in the ICT sector, um, but with uh, augmented intelligence and machine learning and these kind of capabilities becoming, I suppose, quite universal across all industries, am I hearing you say that those skills that deficit could potentially increase in all sectors. Yes, that's yeah. exactly what I'm saying. So yeah. I, I, I don't think, you know, this is not uh, something I think that is solvable uh, quickly. I mm. think the the deficit will will get will grow um, because the demand is going to go, um, you know, higher, um, and the the skill sets will will continue to to, to change. And mm. I mean, I, I I I'm trying to remember my number just for Europe, but but I think it was something of the order of 750,000 to 1 million jobs in ICT uh, that we were short of, mm. and that that was in itself an inhibiting factor to the progress and the pace of change um, in, in, in technology and in business. Mm. And competitiveness on the world stage too, of course. Yeah. You, you mentioned earlier a few, that there are a number of stakeholders involved in, in basically closing these these skills gaps. As an organization, yeah, I think people perhaps assume that IBM is very well placed to A, acquire the best talent, um, and also to know what to do in order to close those skills gaps. Do you have uh, particular strategies or policies in place 
directed particularly at, at closing those skills gaps? We, no, we do. Uh, most certainly uh, we do. Um, and uh, no, we, we, we are very, very focused on, on the skills, the change of skills, the upskilling, uh, bringing new people into our organisation. But one area I'd maybe talk a little about is something called Pathway to Technology. Um, now, we have around 200,000 um, students uh, around the globe that are now, I think, connected to the programme. And the uh, objective behind it is to provide access to technology to young people who would not normally be pursuing technology uh, careers. That may be because of their circumstance or they're disadvantaged. It may also be because the um, the education that they have is not actually encouraging or lending uh, itself to them in a way that encourages them to think about a career in technology. So that was launched in 2011, so about eight years ago, um, and uh, has, has been very successful. Um, between last year and this year, we have announced a number of, of, of initiatives with schools in, in Europe, including in the UK, in Leeds and in uh, Dublin, um, and then a number of other uh, major European cities. And uh, I, I think this is, this is a small way, but it's, it's, it's a, a, an important way of, of starting to, to look at uh, you know, sources of skill and, and access that, 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 that hasn't really been, been, been looked at properly before mm. so there's an there's an active organizational role in developing the pools of talent that will be required to satisfy these kind of skills ab absolutely so absolutely so and and this will only however really reach scale sufficient scale when all the stakeholders in the market including national interests government interests start getting involved as well I would respectfully suggest that. I mean, that can often sound uh, very complicated. Yes, um, course, but, yeah. but but unfortunately, I, I think there there is a need for some some al alignment, uh, uh, you know, of interests in order that uh, that you know we forge forge some some better outcomes for the future. So I just want to take the conversation to a slightly perhaps more nebulous area uh, around the the concerns around ethics and and the the human implications of of AI in the in the workforce. How do you respond to? Well, first of all, do you have these concerns from from the the employees at at IBM about the use of data, about excuse me, about how AI uses the information generated in the workplace? And if so, how how do you engage with those concerns? So we we don't have the concerns, but the concerns exist. And I mean, um, the first thing to say is that. Um, you know, I I have the the, the privilege of, of working for an organisation that, that I consider to be a, a, a very ethical organisation. Uh, and in this area, uh, we were one of the first uh, companies to announce the principles that, that, that we felt uh, were important to apply uh, to uh, AI and to, and to data. Um, so there is, however, I think the emergence of, of, of a kind of, uh, I, I don't know a better way of describing it than saying that there's good tech and there's bad tech. Mm -hmm. uh, good tech for me, uh, uh, very like like IBM, are organisations that um, are, are highly ethical. They are very transparent in what they do and very open with it. Um, that they are uh, clear on data 
and who owns the data. Mm -hmm. uh, so from an IBM perspective, the data is owned by our clients. We're not looking to own that data. Um, we also are very willing and do share the algorithms that are used and uh, make sure that there's complete you know, transparency around that. Um, there are, however, situations where, you know, you may be a, a client or a customer and, you know, you, you don't know who owns the data mm. or you may think you do, but, but actually you don't. You may not know how your data is used, whether it's combined with other organizations or, <clears throat> excuse me, used in, in other ways. And so that transparency element uh, is missing. Um, and, you know, maybe they're not willing to share with you the kinds of algorithms or ways in which um, the data might be, be manipulated. So I think an awful lot uh, in this area is, is very uh, important and, and, you know, you have to feel uh, confident and comfortable uh, about it. Um, but for sure, if I was having a, a phone conversation or a uh, an exchange via uh, uh, email or something, um, as many of us do, if we're buying something in your personal life, I would want to know that I'm dealing with an AI uh, capability and not a human one. Mm. And so, I mean, I, I think the the possibilities of people being, or organizations being, you know, uh, less open or less scrupulous than they should be or less, um, you know, uh, open than they should be are, are, are quite high in here. So I, I think it's an area, again, that's evolving. Mm. Um, and I feel pleased to be part of an organisation that I, I would, you know, respectfully uh, offer is, is is trying to be part of the kind of ethical, uh, you know, transparent, open and good good, good tech. Mm. But, but all the world is not the same and all life is not the same here. Mm. That that transparency is. I mean, you started, but that that that, re that response by saying that you don't really have these concerns in IB and IBM. And am I hearing that that's largely because you have this commitment to transparency? There there are fewer secrets, fewer questions, fewer concerns, um, which leads to this more natural relationship with these with these areas. I think yes is the answer. Mm -hmm. um, but but this is not IBM has not just uh, decided to do this mm. as a company that's been around for, for 108 years and had to kind of adapt and reinvent itself uh, over that time. Um, uh, it, it, it has a very strong uh, sense of purpose, a very strong sense of uh, beliefs, of commitment to, to clients, um, and a, a very strong track record of, of, of behaving in, in, in ethical and, uh, you know, it, important ways mm, so mm. so I, I think it's absolutely consistent uh with with the organization and and and, and what it does mm -hmm. um and you know other organizations will need to need to need to speak for themselves <laughs> on some of this stuff of course it's it's tricky territory to navigate though isn't it i mean individuals in their private lives are constantly giving access to their personal data quite willingly and often without much thought to many different businesses who aren't you know, making public their algorithms or how they use the data or where the data ownership lies. However, um, often it seems that employees require a higher standard from their organizations than they do from these consumer processes. Is, is, is that a fair interpretation? Is that I, I think that's true. And I, 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 think, um, I think employees generally do. But l let's not forget that these days are 
boundaries between what we do in our personal life and what we do in our work life are are, mm. are much mm. closer together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we it's not a case of people come into the the workplace these days and and that's the only place they use technology. We're using it all the time. We're using it uh, everywhere. Um, and so all of these points, uh, you know, that you're raising around, you know, where's my data used? How is my data used? Who has access to that data? Um, you know, what do people know about me? All of those kinds of questions uh, we, we should be raising. Um, and perhaps uh, there are a, a lot of people who are trusting uh, or maybe some that are a little reckless and not really caring about it. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it potentially could be, uh, could be an issue, an issue for them, could be an issue. So to, to I suppose, sum up in a way, Gary, this, this is a multidimensional issue. There's the, the technological aspect of it, just the, even just the raw tech skill. And, and so many of the conversations um, these days around what leaders need in terms of a skill set for the 21st century, what comes to the fore more and more, what traditionally considered these softer skills, these abilities to communicate, empathize, work with people in a very people-centric way. But something that's emerged from what you've been speaking is that's well, that's true and that's well and good, but there's still a very strong need for technical skill development. And this all happens within you know a meta context of organizations, nations, schooling, governments, etc. But organizations also have their internal commitment to their employees and there's this negotiation there about accountability and really this collaborative approach to learning on the employee's behalf between the organization and the employee. So that's that's a complex matrix, right? And and there's obviously no one place to start. But if you if you were put on a block and and asked to to really ad- commit or point to one area or a starting point for for leaders wanting to successfully and healthily integrate AI into their organizational processes. Um, workforce is is there something specific that you could name as a starting block i think i mean what what i would say i you've framed it very very well indeed i think it is complex i think it is multi-dimensional multi-disciplinary and um there are a lot of soft skills that are required to, to navigate um i i do think however we're in a time when um the need for leadership to be willing to experiment has never has never been greater. Mm. Um, you know, many businesses are being disrupted from places they didn't expect. Mm. Um, you know, uh, from competitors that that didn't exist or mm. that suddenly just popped up, or maybe they weren't a, a, a competitor at all, and suddenly they moved into the space. So I think experimentation and the willingness to 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 try uh by the way it won't all work well but this is the nature of what's called agile working and agile thinking where you don't wait until you have the full solution you try something out uh, you adapt it you change it you modify it um and eventually you begin to see the progress in the right ways so that would be one thing I would say. If you're not experimenting, then what what are you doing? Mm, mm. And the the second would be uh, to your point around collaboration. These days, uh, it, it's absolutely critical that we're collaborating across organisations, across different disciplines, maybe even beyond the organisation into the the broader ecosystem at large. Um, 
So I think collaboration and listening, uh, because the ideas don't just come from the, the top, they have to come from, you know, other places. And uh, so I, I think listening and collaborating and then a little bit of experimentation is probably a good way to, to think about things. Fantastic. Gary Kildare, thank you so much. Many thanks, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about our guest or to access some of the resources discussed in this episode, please see the information section in your podcast player. If you have enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and stay connected to the latest ideas shared in Rewired, proudly presented by Headspring. Until next time, I'm your host, Bevan Reese.